listening to The Fret Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast with Eric Daw. show this is the fret files the guitar workshop podcast or the guitar repair i don't know the guitar repair shop podcast whatever you want to call it i'm eric daw and uh, this is the fret files i i feel bad because i didn't do a show last month uh this is episode five i believe um but i should be on episode six if i were doing one a month but i just got so busy last month that it wasn't possible i know it's an only an hour long podcast but it really does take a lot longer than an hour to put together with all the show prep and um all the different uh you know recording calls and editing the show together i do the show in segments and then edit it together later um you know I don't really have the technology to, to like do a live show and fade music in and out, so I have to do all that in post-production, and it's kind of tedious. It kind of takes a while. So anyway, uh, the point is, I was a slacker last month and just got too busy and was traveling uh, with family and uh, didn't do a show. So here I am in June, June 2014, and... Uh, I'm going to try to do one every month, and uh, if I don't, if I miss a month here or there, you'll have to pardon me, because I really am super busy actually repairing guitars, which is how I get paid. <clears throat> I don't make any money doing this podcast, so uh, if I am going to let uh, something slide, it's going to be this podcast and not the repairs. Uh, I also make guitars. You know, I never really talk about it on the show, but I make a guitar a month, usually, and uh, they're, um, they are called Pin-Up Custom Guitars. So you should go check out my website. It's just pinupguitars.com or pinupcustomguitars.com. Either one will get you there. Um, and, uh, yeah, you might find that interesting to see what I do. Hey, while I'm thinking about it, I wanted to remind you to um, subscribe to the show in iTunes, uh, because that way you'll get uh, notified every time there's a new show, so you don't have to uh, keep checking back on my website, which is fretfiles.com, which only is a placeholder, which takes you to ufoship.com. It's really a convoluted uh, roundabout uh, way of, of hosting my podcast, but I like it, so there. But uh, if you go to iTunes, you can subscribe to the podcast, and that way your iTunes will download each new episode every time it's available, so uh, you won't have to wonder where this Eric guy is with his stupid podcast. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, I've got a lot of questions to cover uh, this month, so let's dive right in. We get better. We get better. 
This letter is from Ray in Denver, Colorado. Ray says, I just wanted to thank you for the great podcast. Thanks, Ray. Would love to hear opinions about budget telecasters and your opinions on them, such as Made in Mexico tellies versus parts casters. Hope you keep doing the podcast. Hope to put together enough funds to get a pinup someday. Oh, that's nice. Those are the guitars I make. Uh, yeah, well, um, I, you know, the the made in Mexico Telecasters are are really good for for the money, and that's the that's the thing to remember. It's the money, you know, um, the extra money you spend on a handmade instrument or a custom, like a Fender Custom Shop, or a, or if you're going to buy something that a guy like me uh, puts together. Um, the devil really is in the details, and those little details really do mean a lot. Um, all the little uh, woodworking. Um, things that don't happen on the Made in Mexico tellies that do happen on um, handmade ones, like rolled fingerboard edges and the um, tadio taper, which is the back of the headstock where it where it um, contours from the neck to the headstock. Uh, they're kind of by the by the low E tuner. Uh, really, just delicate details that take a lot more time. Uh, time that they don't put into the made in Mexico or into a, I don't know, a parts caster. Um, and the other thing about it is uh, the quality of the the parts, the quality of the pickups, the quality of the bridges, the the pots. I mean, it really all adds up. Um, the, the Mexican-made Telecasters are, are, like I say, they're pretty good for the money you're going to spend, but it's definitely worth the extra to get um, something that much better, and and you really, it's hard to go wrong uh, with uh, with a handmade guitar, uh, and that's kind of what I specialize in. But uh, I understand, um, you know, there's there's also a lot of people that just put together parts casters out of uh, parts that they buy on eBay. This body versus this neck, and they try to put it all together. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. You know, there's a lot of necks and a lot of bodies that just don't fit right together. And you would think that that is all standardized, but it's really not. I see a lot of um, put together parts caster guitars that they just don't fit right, and that fit is is pretty important for tone. Uh, and there will be things like bridges that don't quite align and electronics that don't quite fit into the cavity. Um, it can be kind of frustrating trying to put together a parts caster if, if you don't know what you're doing. But, um, yeah, like I say, the, the, the extra money is where the quality comes in, and uh, it is worth it if you can afford it. So thanks, Ray. Thanks for the uh, email. Next question is from Ken... Ken says, Hi, Eric. I have a question for you on your Fret Files podcast. I'm in the market for a new high-end acoustic guitar and considering a Collings OM2, possibly with a German spruce top. That's a nice guitar, man. Uh, This will likely be the only high-end guitar I purchase, so I'm looking for one that has a lot of versatility. I came across a custom OM2G at a store called Maple Leaf Music in Brattleboro, Vermont. And he gives me a link to that particular guitar. 
Note that this custom guitar has no tongue brace. Can you explain what that means when a guitar has no tongue brace and what the likely impacts are both sonically and in terms of reliability? If you have any other thoughts on that guitar, I would appreciate those as well. Thank you from Ken. Uh, you know, one of the things, I looked at that guitar, one of the things I noticed right off the bat is it has a pretty wide, um, nut width. It has a, uh, the neck at the nut is an inch and three quarters, which is, it's pretty wide for, for my tastes, but, uh, if a lot of finger style guys, a lot of finger pickers like that. So if you like a wider nut, then that is a good guitar for you. Um, about the tongue brace, yeah. Uh, well, that's something that, 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 the tongue brace is, uh, just a thin, it's, it's almost like a popsicle stick. I mean, it's really a thin, it looks like a tongue depressor, you know, that's, I think that's why they call it the tongue brace. Um, that popsicle stick brace, uh, just, uh, is, lays kind of underneath the, the, um, the fingerboard extension up there. Uh, close to the neck block, uh, and it's really close to the edge of the guitar. I mean, it's it is the closest brace to the neck, so it's very thin, and it's way close to the edge of the guitar. So, um, for whatever reason, uh, in the '30s, when when Martin introduced um, like the the 14 fret dreadnought uh they left that tongue brace out and i don't know why that is because it was in all of their other guitars uh at least to my knowledge it was and um when they when they introduced the 14 fret dreadnought the bracing was a little different than it than it is now it was it was moved uh a little bit um and they didn't have the tongue brace and after a few years i mean i think in the in the in the early 40s maybe mid 40s 40 44 i think they uh switched the bracing they moved it a little bit and then introduced the reintroduced the the tongue brace and for some reason people um uh have a real affinity towards those guitars and they feel like the different bracing and the lack of a tongue brace has a big effect on the tone um and i I do agree that it does uh, have an effect on the tone to have the bracing in a different place. But that tongue brace really, I mean, it really doesn't affect the tone much. It's way up there um, in a place where it's 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 not really going to sonically affect the guitar that much. Uh, it's a lot more of a structural thing than a sound thing. It's a very thin brace. And it's right next to a really thick brace, and it's right, you know, you've got the fingerboard there and, and the, the neck block right there, and those are um, inhibiting tone way more than that, than that, than that tongue brace would be. So, um, and the reason that they, that they started putting the tongue brace in there in the 40s was, uh, from my understanding, uh, is because they were having um, problems uh you know the they were having cracks and uh you know right there by the right by the, by the fingerboard um warranty issues and customers were complaining so they um they started putting the tongue brace in there so i i really don't think it affects sound 
hardly at all, maybe a little. This is just my opinion. I'm sure people will disagree. Um, I don't think it affects sound that much, but it it really does um, add to the structural integrity of the guitar. So uh, I would probably, if it were me, I would opt towards a guitar that had a a tongue brace. Um, But you know, I mean, if if this, if Collings, if, if you're buying a brand new guitar from Collings and it doesn't have a tongue brace and it has a lifetime warranty, which for what they're charging for this guitar, it should, uh, then I guess, you know, there's no reason to worry if it has a lifetime warranty, but mm, still, it's, I'd, I'd feel better if there were a tongue brace in it. So that is how I see it. Thanks for the email, Ken. This is from Zach here in Seattle. Zach says, Eric, just listen to episode four, and thanks for reading my letter. The procedure you gave for checking not slot height was very helpful. Good. That is great information, and I will use that. Thank you. You're welcome, Zach. I don't know how far you have your interviews booked, booked out or how you select your subjects, but I would be interested in in Billy Rowe from San Francisco. Here's a link, rockandrollrelics.net. I checked out that website. looks pretty cool. Zach continues, I'm interested in his Thunders 2 model. I've read what I can find on the internet, which is not much. I have had a little communication with him via email, but how would I check up on this guy and the quality of his work? Maybe Red could do a story on him. The story Red did on Moniker was cool, and I checked them out. But no Double Cut Juniors, and I'm not looking for a bolt-on neck. Thoughts? <laughs> Thanks, man. You're doing the Lord's work. I hope all is well. Well, thank you, Zach. I appreciate you uh, participating in the podcast and uh, sending in that letter. Um, I, I do have... I do have a lot of guys that I want to interview uh, in the guitar world, and I'm not getting to them hardly fast enough at all. So I probably, I'm probably not going to be interviewing uh, Billy from San Francisco anytime soon. If I run out of if I run out of ideas, I will. Um, it's the first I've heard of of Rock and Roll Relics dot net, but it looks cool. I don't know how you could check up. On, I mean. There's there's review websites. There's got to be some reviews on his on his guitars. Maybe check Harmony Central. Um, I know that they do uh, review, product reviews. A lot of product reviews on on there. Um, maybe you could call him up and ask him for some uh, some references. Uh, that should be easy to do. If somebody did that to me, I could easily, you know, give them the numbers of a half dozen people just off the top of my head that that could uh, uh, vouch for, for the uh, quality of my work. So, you know, maybe ask him for uh, some references. There, that's an idea. Anyway, thanks for the email. This next question is from Brian in Vancouver. I'm assuming Vancouver, B.C., but could be Vancouver, Washington. I don't know. It's here in the Northwest. Uh, either way. Hi, Eric. Just found your Fret Files show this morning, and I think it's great. Thanks, Brian. It's the kind of podcast I've been waiting for as a dedicated 
amateur player who's interested in learning about repair and building topics. Here's my question for you. I'm kind of obsessed with Telecasters. Jeez, me too. (laughs) I'm noticing a theme here. I do tend to attract telefreaks because I am one myself. And I guess I've kind of put myself out there as uh, somewhat of an expert on Telecasters. Anyway, I continue with Brian's letter. He says, I own one. It's a mid-90s 52 reissue. It sounds pretty darn good, plays okay, but I really want to upgrade to something finer. Vintage stuff is totally out of my league, and Fender Custom Shop lines are too pricey for me. So I'm thinking about the Partscaster route as an option. Buying finished pieces, maybe uh, going on the adventure of putting one together myself. I've done several other do-it-yourself projects, wiring up a bunch of pedals and so forth. And, of course, I'd have a pro do a full setup at the end of the process. What do you think? Is this a good route to a satisfying, quality, telly-like experience without the big league budget? Thanks, and keep the great podcasts coming. All the best, Brian. Uh, Yeah, like I said um, when answering the first letter, Partscaster's are a little bit of a gamble because um, it really depends on on the parts you're buying and how well they fit together and how good you are at making them work together because there is a, a lot of finesse involved there um, and a lot of it's going to depend on the fretwork of the neck you buy. Uh, typically, it won't the neck you buy won't have a nut and if it does, it'll probably be a, a plastic one and I would highly recommend a bone nut, and that takes some craftsmanship to get uh, a bone nut cut just right. So um, it's a bit of a gamble. It can be done um, for what you're going to spend. And here's a a shameless self-plug. For what you're going to spend on doing that and on paying someone to assemble it and make a nut and wire it and all of that jazz, um, you might as well just look at my website, pinupguitars.com. (laughs) <laughs> it's a it's a, a shameless plug, but <clears throat> you know my guitars are uh, a lot less than what what the big boy custom shops uh, charge. So you might look at that. Anyway, thanks for the letter, Brian. Oh, and he's got a P.S. here. P.S. In your first podcast, you mentioned the influence that the Buddy Holly story film had on you as a kid. Coincidentally, I just saw this movie for the first time the other night. Has it ever bothered you that Gary Busey is most often shown playing a telly in the movie, when Buddy was famous for playing strats? Seems like a pretty weird thing to get wrong in a good movie like that. Then again, I'm no expert, so maybe I'm out to lunch here. No, I <clears throat> I hear you. Um, when I first saw the movie at, at like eight years old, or however old I was, six years old, I don't even remember. Um, it was a huge influence on me. I mean, I didn't even care about music till I saw that movie. It just, it just absolutely knocked me flat on my back. And this is in the, oh, you know, early early eighties when I was just a kid, and uh, I didn't know enough to even recognize that he had the wrong guitar. So it didn't bother me, and since it didn't bother me at first, it subsequently has never really bothered me, even though now I know that he shouldn't be playing a telly in the movie, and he's got the totally wrong amp. (laughs) The first scene he's playing, 
like an 80s uh, Fender Bronco. It's totally, it's way off. <laughs> but, um, but you know, don't let that bother you. It's, it's a super cool movie. The other thing about that movie is that, that there's about uh, about 20% facts in the movie and 80% just completely, totally made up um, fantasy there's no mention of uh, i mean they changed his his band members names he they changed how many people were in the band they completely left out um a huge part of buddy holly's um career was a guy named norman petty in clovis new mexico had a studio called norvajack studios and um that's where a lot of Buddy Holly, especially early uh, Buddy Holly records were were recorded, and he was a huge part of Buddy's career. He was completely written out of the movie. Um, they had him basically, you know, he cuts a, a demo at a roller rink, and then all of a sudden he's famous and goes to New York in the movie, and that's not how it went at all, not even close. So it's a total fantasy, but um, the, the acting, Gary Busey is... I mean, I've never, I don't even think I've ever seen any other movie that Gary Busey is in, but just on the basis of that movie alone, he's awesome. I know he's crazy now. This was, that movie was made 30, 35 years ago, and it's, it's a, if you haven't seen it, check out the Buddy Holly story. Just don't, uh, don't make, don't get it confused with an actual biography of Buddy Holly, because it's not, but, um, it's an excellent movie. Anyway, thank you for the letter, Brian. Uh, Got a couple of calls to play, so let's go to the phones. Hi, Eric. Uh, just wondered what your favorite brand of tuning machines are and why. Thanks for taking my call. Well, absolutely, and thank you for calling. Uh, by the way, if you would like to participate in this podcast, and I wish you would, um, you can leave a voicemail like this for me at uh, 757 757- Seven seven four eight four eight two. That's seven five seven guitar. No wait, seven five seven seventy seven guitar. Yeah, seven five seven 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 four eight four eight two. So um, you leave me a voicemail there, and I'll I'll use it as part of the show. Or if you want to send an email, go to ericdaw.com and click on the contact link. And send me an email there. I'll use it as part of the show. Uh, my favorite brand of tuning machine is um, actually uh, Goto. They're Japanese-made. You know, I, I do like... There's probably brands that are better, like Waverly. Um, but the Gotos are so well-made, and and they're, they're so affordable compared to some of the really high-end tuning machines like Waverly um, that uh, I, I really just kind of prefer Goto's. Um, they make the best Klusen copy, you know, the old-fashioned Klusen tuner that you find on vintage Fenders and Gibsons and other guitars. Um, if you buy the ones that actually say Klusen on them now, those I'm pretty sure those are made in uh, China or maybe Korea. Um, it's not the same company. Somebody has bought the name Klusen, and now they're making, um, you know, replica Klusens, and they're not very good. The Goto ones, the Goto ones are, are way better, um, so I would uh, have to vote for Goto tuners. They make the best Klusen copies, and then they make an open back 
Waverly style tuner that I don't have the part number in front of me, but um, it's easy to find. I, All Parts has them, uh, and uh, those are really my favorite tuner. That that's that's what I've got on on my main guitar right now, and uh, I I just love them. Can't say enough about Goto tuners. They're really good. So thanks for the call. Hi, Rich. I have a question about my Gretsch. Hey, I've got a bridge on this thing that's got blades on it. And oftentimes, I break my A string when I'm cranking up and down on my Bigsby. And now there seems to be some controversy about using a roller bridge, uh, if I put that on there. Yeah, I don't, I don't really understand why that won't work. I've been thinking about doing it. And I was hoping you could comment and maybe guide me on what would be the appropriate bridge for a guy who breaks strings all the time with his blade bridge and his Bigsby. Uh, thank you. appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate you uh, participating in the show. So uh, I assume by blade uh, bridge you're talking about a, a two-pneumatic style bridge, like what would be on a, uh, like on a Gibson. Um they have these little weird wedge saddles, these little blade, uh, you know, shaped wedge saddles that it should have grooves cut for each string. And there's a couple of things you can do uh, that you might be able to do just to keep that bridge um, on the guitar and still be fine. Uh, one thing I would tell you to make sure you're doing, um, if you've got a Bigsby and if you're breaking strings, uh, put a little bit of graphite in each um slot up at the nut, you know, up by the tuners. Um, Every time you use that Bigsby, the string needs to slide through the bridge, through the nut, and oftentimes what happens is that string binds up in the nut, and then uh, even though it's bound up in the nut, it still will break in the in, at the bridge saddle, so um, it seems counterintuitive, but you might your attention might need to be at the nut instead of the bridge. But um, that being said, you know. Uh, there are things that you that you can do to help um, uh, and just keep the bridge that you've got. Um, if you take some really fine sandpaper, some really fine sandpaper, you you can uh, with the strings off, you can go in those grooves that are cut for your strings. Uh, go and sand those smooth and get rid of any burrs that might be there um, and kind of round the edges just a little bit, you know, just in, just inside the grooves, not not the top of the saddle at all, but just the grooves. Um, you can, you know, put a little bit of sandpaper around a toothpick or just fold some sandpaper in half, really fine sandpaper, maybe like, you know, 600 grit or, uh, I don't know, 400 grit, 600 grit, 800 grit. And... Um, even better, if you've got a Dremel, you can take a little polishing wheel and buff those out after you're done sanding them. Um, you can also just take a take a nice uh, take a string with some polishing compound on it and just run it through that groove like like you're flossing a tooth, you know, and uh, polish those uh, saddle slots out. And then when you put your strings back on, um, put a little bit of graphite in those slots uh, and let the let the string sit on the graphite particles or you can even use just a little bit of um, like light oil like three in one oil or sewing machine oil where the saddle meets this the string because it's metal on metal at the nut you don't want to use oil because it's going to be 
metal on plastic or metal on bone, and the uh, oil will soak into the bone and it will look funny and it hurt. The, you don't want to do that. Use graphite there, but at the saddle you can use oil if if you want, um, and that might just be enough to to uh, uh, help you and and keep strings from breaking. If it's not enough, um, you can swap out to any number of bridges that should be better. A uh, roller bridge, I, you know, um, some people love them, some people hate them. Uh, I don't see any problem with them if as long as it's a well-made one by a reputable manufacturer. There are cheap, crappy ones that just don't work. I mean, the, the saddles don't even roll. Um, but I would also look at GraphTech replacement saddles for your um, for your bridge. Uh, they make several different uh, sizes uh, to, that should fit, um, you know, whichever bridge you've got. And it will just be, you know, you can use your same bridge, the same housing, but you'll take all those saddles off and you'll re- replace them with uh, graphite saddles. And so instead of metal on metal there, you've got metal on a solid graphite saddle that um, every time the string moves, rather than being a point of friction, it's a point of lubrication because the string and the saddle, when they meet, it actually rubs off these tiny little, you know, microscopic particles of graphite and um, just keeps the string moving freely. And so the graphite saddles are an option. Some people don't like uh some people feel like that it changes your tone the graphite does and that they don't like the way they sound so that's something to consider i mean th- there's a lot of options you know and a lot of considerations i kind of like the gretsch bridge that is just a round bar i mean it just looks like a little sausage <laughs> i mean there's six grooves in it there's no sharp points at all um it's really simple. It's just, I think it's called a bar bridge. And it really, it literally is just a, like about a, a half inch thick solid bar. Um, and the only downside with that bridge is that you can't get a super accurate intonation out of it. So your tuning might suffer just a little bit, but you've already got a Bigsby, so it's probably, you know, it would probably work fine. It would probably work great. So a couple of options to think about um, and maybe a couple remedies for you there. So thanks again for the call. Um, Appreciate it. And I'd appreciate it if you would participate in the podcast. Like I say, give me a call, give me an email. Can't do this show if I don't have questions to answer. So, um, I would really appreciate you participating, even if they're, even if you think your question is dumb. I guarantee you, there's no dumb questions, man. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm happy to answer anything you got. So, uh, you know, as long as it's guitar related. <laughs> well, let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back with some news, guitar news with Red. So stick around. The Fret Files podcast is sponsored by Emerald City Guitars. Emerald City Guitars is the Northwest's premier vintage guitar store. In fact, it's uh, one of the world's most well-known guitar stores. We specialize in vintage gear. I say we because, hey, I work there. I'm the repair specialist. I've been there for uh, 13 years now, and uh, I do all the all the customer uh, repairs and all of the... Um, 
a lot of the restorations that happen on a lot of the gear that's that's uh, for sale there. You should check out Emerald City Guitars' website if you haven't. EmeraldCityGuitars.com. You will be astounded at the inventory. It is, it's really amazing, and I'm I'm blessed to work there. It's an awesome store. Uh, you should check it out. So, Emerald City Guitars, check it out. Joining me now from a dive bar in South Texas is Red with Guitar News. Hi, Red. How you doing? Doing good. How are things up there? Things are good in Seattle. You know, life is uh, just plugging along. Yeah, well, let me tell you, this big news this month is uh, it's Les Paul's birthday on June 9th. So oh, yeah. this is a Gibson-packed segment of Guitar News for you. Good. Okay. Well, uh, what do you got for us? Well, first off, let's lead right into this great BBC Radio 2 feature coming up on June 23rd, all about the mysterious Kalamazoo gals of Kalamazoo, Michigan, narrated by Susie Quattro, the lady who broke the trail for all other ladies of rock to follow. This program will uncover what was created at an all-female staffed Gibson factory during World War II, namely 25,000 highly sought-after Gibson instruments, which include 9,000 guitars, Hmm. kind of made in secret. Uh, So it's like a a BBC documentary about the wartime employees of Gibson, which were predominantly female, right? That's correct. That sounds really cool, and I've I've read about um, those days in Gibson, and I mean it wasn't, it's not unique to Gibson. A lot of um, companies uh, during the war uh, were, you know, using female employees because all the men were out fighting the Nazis, right? Right, that's right. So they had to uh, step up the ladies. Yep. Yeah. Well, cool. That's going to be cool. I hope I uh, get a chance to see that. Oh, yeah. You'll hear it from uh, the surviving gals themselves. You can look for it at bbc.co.uk under programs on June 23rd and uh, hear it from the girls themselves who worked at the factory. Cool. Oh, I'll watch that for sure. Cool. Well, what else you got? Well, I got a story that's going to pull on your... High E string there. Uh, <laughs> this one is just, just gonna make you all warm and fuzzy. Um, so we all have that one guitar, the one special guitar that stole our hearts. Well, Bill Frizzell has been reunited with his love, a beautiful 1968 Gibson ES-175. Yeah. Uh, tobacco sunburst arch top. He got it from his guitar teacher, Dale Bruning, for $450, and he learned on it, he loved it, and then regrettably sold it to a shop, a rinky-dink shop in Boston in 1978. Hmm. But he never could quite stop thinking about this guitar and how much he regretted selling it. 
and uh, it never left his mind through the years as the internet, you know, came online. He would search now and then, hoping against hope to run across it. Well, recently, earlier this year, uh, over a conversation with Danny Hofer, who works for Gibson, Bill brought it up, thinking maybe, just maybe. Yeah. Well, he was right, because early this year, Danny found the long-lost archtop on Facebook advertised by Thunder Road Guitars in West Seattle. I mean, by the actual serial number. Yeah, it's really an amazing story, and and uh, I I'm a I'm a friend of Bill's, and I'm I'm act- I actually work on a lot of his guitars, and I worked on that guitar when he after he found it, and it was just uh, the most amazing coincidence because. Um, for it to show up so close to his house. I mean, he lives here in Seattle, right? And mm-hmm. uh, had, he had just had this conversation with uh, with that guy, um, you know, I mean, just like a week or two before the guitar showed up at this shop in, in Seattle. It was it was almost like, I mean, talk about synchronicity. It, it's almost too much of a coincidence to, to believe. It's almost like he just, I don't know, created it by wanting it so bad in yeah, his he, mind that right. it just appeared for yeah. him. Yeah, he willed it into uh into the city. It's really amazing and I, I uh when he got it back I did a couple things to it. I don't remember what I did even is just minor stuff. He brought it to me. But that guitar is really unique because um it must have been a special order. Uh it has bound F holes, which is really unusual. Uh uh, for that model, and it had something else that was unusual, and I, I don't remember what, but um, I believe yeah. the neck had unusual wood used on the back of the neck. Mm. Oh yeah, was it a? It was a. I don't remember now. Anyway, um, beautiful guitar and uh, really a sentimental guitar for for Bill. So I'm so glad he got it back. Yeah, and I'm I'm really fascinated that you bring up the condition because what amazed me the most about this whole story was the it, the guitar had not been altered. Yeah. In any way, it was essentially a little bit older, aged, played in, but still really the same guitar, his same old friend in great condition. Yeah, it had such a rare thing to happen. Uh, yeah, it had some playing wear, but that's about it. Um, it even had there was a little piece of cork that Bill had put under the pit guard to support the pit guard, and you know, thirty years ago, and it was still there. It was still there holding it in place. Yeah. Wow. I know. It's amazing. Well, I'm sure it's priceless, priceless to Bill. And when you heard him play it at uh, fretboardjournal.com, it sounds just like every note is a drop of honey coming off his fingers. You know, it's just (laughs) incredible. And you can see him light right up when he's playing it. Um, you can see that he's just in heaven with his his old friend back in his hands. So that yeah. that story really really lit me up too. Yeah, I yeah. thought it was a great one. Yeah, I'm really happy and for Bill that he found cool. that. Yeah, it's cool. Awesome. Yeah, and I, I mean that's amazing. You actually worked on it. Yeah, well, Bill's a friend of mine and and uh, a customer. You know, I work on most of his guitars and you know do just some things here and there. Um, but 
uh, yeah, it's the, the, as soon as he got it, I, he had me do a couple things. I don't even remember what. I think it was just minor setup issues, but um, the, it really was in fine condition. It didn't need anything. Wow, so maybe adjust some intonation or adjust the nut or something like that? Yeah, I just, I, it's funny that I don't remember, but I just don't, yeah, I don't remember what I did exactly. <laughs> well, it must not have needed much. Yeah. It was a great, great story, though. Yeah, cool. What else you got? Well, we do have some birthdays of some Gibson players uh, this June. We got Jeff Beck, June 24. He oh, was yeah. born in 1944. Uh, we got uh, Delta Blues pioneer David Honeyboy Edwards, mm. June 28th, he 1915. Just, 1915. He so, almost made it to 100. I think he just died just a, a year or two ago. Really? Yeah. I was wondering. Wow. And uh, I bet he pioneered. He did pioneer a lot of licks that people probably still use today. Yeah, he was a contemporary of Robert Johnson. He traveled with Robert Johnson and... Uh, uh, was just, yeah. Uh, if in fact the there's a really cool video that has uh, Honey Boy Edwards in it, and it's called "The Search for Robert Johnson" with John Hammond. And I'm I'm sure it's on YouTube. If you get a chance, you should watch it. It it is so good. The music and the history, um, all about the Delta Blues and and specifically Robert Johnson and who he was and and kind of the the myths surrounding his life and and Honey Boy wow. Edwards. Is interviewed pretty extensively in that in that uh, little documentary, and he plays a lot of guitar too. So it's cool. You should check it out. Oh wow, I definitely will. Because you know, all good rock and heavy riffs come from the blues. That's where oh, they all yeah. originate from. That's where it came so, from. Always in into some good blues and uh, Tal Farlow. Uh, jazz guitar, great. He was born, his birthday is June 7th, 1921. Wow. So, another one from the history books there, having a birthday. And um, as far as new music and stuff that's going around, uh, unlikely <laughs> player, uh, I don't know if you ever watched Survivor Man, but Les Stroud is doing some tour dates this summer. And he plays Gibson, and he's a very good player, actually. Um, and uh, he's going to be at the Easy Rider Saloon on August 2nd in Sturgis, South Dakota. So, um, huh. And some other dates around the country. So check out Les Stroud. He's worth seeing. I didn't know he played. Um, what kind of music does he do? It's, um, I would say, a, somewhere in between... Um, Blues, classic rock, with a little undertone of country to it. It's very hard to pin wow. down. So rootsy yeah, stuff. Very, That's cool. Very, very listenable. He's a great player. You can cool. hear the skill. Yeah. All right. Well, that wraps it up. Thank you once again for joining us on the Fret Files podcast. Hey, no problem. This has been Red bringing you the news. We'll see you next month. Yeah, thank you, Red. Well, uh, we'll take a little break here and be right back with an interview uh, with Trevor Boone, who just recently bought a very, very rare Fender guitar. Don't go away.
me now on the phone is Trevor Boone from Emerald City Guitars. Hi, Trevor. How you doing? I'm doing great, man. How are you, Eric? I'm good. Uh, you know, the reason I wanted to have you on the show, um, well, aside from the fact that you're just a cool guy, right, uh, was to talk about your new guitar. Um, yeah. And it's the reason I wanted to talk about it on the show was it's it's one of the the rarest fenders I've ever seen. I, I agree, man. I it, I'm kind of in shock still um, looking at it right now on my bed. I'm just every time I kind of pass it, it it's a little little frightening <laughs> and exciting. But uh, before we before we dive into it, um, I work with you and uh, and your father Jay down at Emerald City Guitars, and you guys. I'm always astonished at the skill you guys have for finding rare guitars. It's like true. It's truly amazing. I mean, it seems like every day there's a, a new rare, amazing guitar that comes down there. But um, I know because I see behind the scenes how much work how much work goes into that. I mean, you guys will be tracking down a particular guitar sometimes for years. Yeah, there's been a couple cases. Um where the hunt has lasted a couple of years, two, three years. Um, I think that attributes a lot to, well, we've been down there for 20 years. We have, we, we have a really, really cool, amazing staff. Um, as you know, you've been part of it for, I think 14 years now and, uh, yeah. you're a huge part of it. Yeah. Um, and I think after, you know, 20 years of really doing business right and treating people right, you just kind of, you, well, you get a reputation after a while. I think it helps, you know, it, it attracts a lot of gear, and um, yeah. my dad has just been in the business forever. And he's just he's just a real amazing guy, and I think a lot of people when you're when you're dealing with kind of these intimate objects, um, you want something yeah. you can trust. And I think that that comes down to you, my dad, and you know, I think that the entire store is just uh, we've just I, I, that's a kind of our main goal. You know, make it trustworthy, make it comfortable, and I think that's where why a lot of gear ends up with us. Yeah. So this particular guitar that you just purchased a few weeks ago, um, is this mm-hmm. a guitar you've known about for a long time? Yeah, so it's kind of funny because I work at a vintage guitar store. I grew up in one, and um, obviously you're, you're surrounded with a lot of right-handed instruments because most players are right-handed. Um, and I'm right-handed by play left-handed. Yeah. It's the only thing I only thing I do left-handed. So I've always you know, been on the hunt for lefties and kind of poking around on Craigslist, on eBay. Um, I, uh, when I was 21, I'm 25 now, when I was 21, I kind of same story. I, I tracked down an old Martin, um, a 40s Martin, a, a lefty that um, I didn't really know what I had at the time. And when I got it, um, some of the kind of elite lefty collectors kind of caught wind of it. And uh, a couple of them approached me. One was a, a, a local guy um, named Rick and, um, he just kind of, he wanted to check out the guitar, so he brought down a couple of his own to kind of show me, and we're going to kind of, you know, you don't, you don't get to see a lot of these old classics, so lefties, there's kind of this uh, group that, you know, they want they want to show you these, and uh, they're, they're just excited about it. So he, he had brought down this guitar and showed me, and um, and I was blown away. Telecasters in general have been my uh, my favorite guitar for, for a very long time, um, and they're pretty much the only guitar I think I'm going to, I mean, real guitar I'm going to stick with. Yeah. And, uh, as you know, I've been playing a, a left-handed um, pinup custom guitar for years now, and that, that was my main guitar. I kind of um, abandoned all my other ones in the closet. 
And so when I saw this 52 telly that Rick brought down, I was obviously blown away. Um, and and I, I, I really couldn't believe it because not only was it an old vintage lefty telly, it was a 1952, kind of the Holy Grail. Yeah. And um, I told him, you know, I'm never going to be able to get this. You know, I'm sure it's worth a, a, a buttload of money. Um, but if when you, when the time comes, if you're apart with it, if you give me a call, man, if I'm in a position to buy it, you know, I'll do it out of right. And he was, he had no intention of selling at the time. Um, and he said, you know, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. They'll probably pass it down to my, uh, to my grandson. I think he's going to be a lefty player, um, which makes sense. And, um, so that was that I got to check out the guitar. It was a highlight of my, you know, month I'm sure. And, um, and life went on and about five years later or so I kept in touch with Rick a little bit about cool lefties we found and, you know, this and that. And, he called me about five years later and said, Hey, um, I was going through some health issues. He's okay now. Thank God. And, uh, but he, um, you know, he had some expenses and he was just kind of in his older age, he was going over to like a lot of like, a kind of newer fenders and calling some of these small volume boutique builders. And he was deciding to part with it. So he, man of his word, gave me a call. And, um, and he gave you a shot at it. Huh? Man, yeah. Yeah. He gave me a shot at it. And, I didn't know what the number was going to be, and um, I figured you know it wasn't going to be reachable. But I I had to get this, and I knew, so I was prepared to I was prepared to sell my car. Oh yeah, definitely get rid of them. You know. Well, I know that you sold um, basically every other guitar that you own to get this guitar, and that's that's pretty impressive. I mean that that says a lot about a, a how you feel about a guitar to be able to do that. I knew I had to strike all the iron pot and. Uh, I just kind of quick sold all my stuff, you know, just cheap, just so I get some cash. And um, I knew I wasn't getting, you know, I didn't have time to sit my gear on the market and wait for top dollar. I just, I had to get rid of it. I had to grab that thing because he sure as heck could have sold it um, at any point. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, I sold all my gear and, um, and, and now, I was and, able to make this purchase. And now you have what I believe is the the first truly lefty, the tr- first truly left-handed Fender guitar. Um, it's a it's a 1952 Fender Telecaster left-handed, and uh, uh, it's not the first left-handed uh, Fender, but it's the first truly left-handed in the sense that all the components are left-handed. There's there there were other prototypes, and I know that there was another uh, left-handed one made just a few months before that one, and it's in. Uh, the Blackguard book, Nacho Benya's his famous book. Um, but that guitar is the guitar uh, that was made just a few months before this one has a right-handed neck and other right-handed components. Is, is that correct? I mean, it's got a it it. I think it has a a left-handed body, but uh, a right-handed neck. Yeah, a left-handed body with a right-handed neck, and um, and I've heard some rumors about this one also having some other like right-handed components. Um, and, um, and I think they kind of messed around with maybe one or two that were, you know, some special orders that they maybe didn't have the right materials or what you were saying, the correct die or this or that to make a full lefty. Um, so there's kind of some interesting hybrids, but as far as like, you know, top to bottom, this and, you know, uh, this is, this is, uh what you know the the other owner as well thought he'd, he'd been doing you know research for 30 years and he was saying no this is the first real full lefty that's um, yeah that's what i think too now what what month is yours is does it say march on the 
on the yeah, uh, it was it was Mar- March nineteen fifty two. Um, Tayo Gomez, Carvnek, um, D Stamp Neck and Body. Um, yeah. and it yeah, does March March fifty two. And yours doesn't have any right handed parts on it. Basically, I mean it's it's truly a left handed guitar, right? That's correct. Um, I was impressed with the uh, the bridge. You know, looking at it, it was almost like being able to look through time and look into the into into the Fender workshop because you could see how they made the bridge and it was different than a right-handed bridge. The right-handed bridge, you know, a normal Telecaster bridge is is stamped, and mm-hmm. that bridge on your guitar is a lot like the the Snakehead prototype. You know, the the late forties prototype yeah. bridges that they made on just on a bending machine. So it's made out of a flat piece of steel and they just bent the sides up. And um, it also has, your guitar also has top loader holes on the bridge, yeah. which I thought was interesting. I, I, I can't quite figure out wh- why that is. You know, on your last podcast, I think you were talking about um, kind of like farmers and the whole deal about fixing things kind of on the spot. And I feel like it kind of attributes to back in those days, they had to make these bridges kind of on the spot. And I'm thinking they might have just kind of put those options while they could on it. Uh, since it was such a kind of a custom piece at the time, one of the first bridges like this they probably stamped out, they might have just included that option on it, not really knowing, you know, <laughs> exactly what the guy was. I'm not sure. It, it's yeah, interesting. It's a, it's a mystery, but it's cool. Um, and the other interesting thing about your guitar is that it has different tooling marks than than a right-handed guitar would have. Uh, if you look mm-hmm. at the dowel marks on the neck, on a right-handed guitar, those dowel marks are on the back of the neck. There's one under the D tuner, and there's one under the, um, you know, inside the neck pocket. Mm-hmm. And on your guitar, those tooling marks are reversed, so they're on the f- they're on the front part of the neck. There's one yep. one on the headstock, just exposed. And then one yep. one on the fingerboard up on like the what the maybe the fifteenth fret or something. Yeah, exactly. And so kind of an interesting thing that's that is con- you know that's consistent with those lefty ones, and a lot of guys kind of overlook that. And one of the that's one of the deals I read about scoping out fake lefty fenders was making sure that they are the, kind of the, they do have different tooling marks. And and it's it it is different, but it's kind of the same in the sense that. What that tells me is that it was made on the same pin router, but just made yep. upside down. Yeah, exactly. Which is awesome. Uh, I know. <laughs> it's old old school uh, craftsmanship. Those you know the the old tellies were made on a pin router, and that's why they have the dowel marks, the tooling marks. Um, but to see the reversed uh, tooling marks on your guitar was it was really cool, man. It was just it's. What a cool guitar! And I know you can kind of picture it on the on those machines, you know, just kind of oh well, I guess put this one backwards and yeah. now. And Tadio Gomez, right. uh, his initials are on the on the heel, right? Yep, that's correct. Which is which is really cool because um, and you you actually pointed out to me some of the typical neck shapes and up towards the headstock shapes that is um, pretty consistent with Tadio Gomez um, carved necks and. I've been able to check out a couple other tellies that he's done, and um, I'm just really happy that he that his initials are on that because I am a big fan of his mechs. So yeah. 
the fact that this one also includes his work, and he was able to do a consistent shape on a left-handed guitar kind of blows me away. Yeah. Well, and it, I thought it was interesting, too, that normally they only put the month and the year on a on the neck heel. And when he signed your guitar, uh, he put he put the day there as well. I think yeah. I think he knew he was making a special neck. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm. I'm. It's funny. Little things like that just bring you right into that factory, man. And they, like, yeah. exactly what you're saying. He must. You know that if that was his first one, man, I'm sure he had a, kind of an idea that these guitars were kind of you know a little bit of a revolution, and and he went that you know just a little extra, just to kind of you know, make that a special mech and tell the story a little bit. Yeah, I wonder how, uh, yeah, I wonder how cognizant they were of, of really what they were doing and, and what it was going to mean in the future <laughs> in that factory. I don't know. Part of me says they didn't have a clue, and the other part of me wants to wants to think that they that they did, that they, they knew that they were doing something unique that was going to stand the test of time. But I don't know. It's hard to say. I know, too, and they're saying, you know, he really had to, put his stamp of approval and he approved you know the next like you know and i don't know if that's just romanticized if he was just popping them out trying to get to lunch break or what but he was doing something right and you yeah. know yeah. it hasn't been able to no one's been able to do it quite like that so um and this guitar is is refinished right mm-hmm. the, yeah so um when i got the guitar it was um, a factory refin actually by fred stewart of the custom shop that's cool who yeah, it was. It's cool that he did it, and I wasn't that. I wasn't that impressed. Um, it was just kind of. I mean, it looked cool. It looked, you know, it was an old telly, but it, it just didn't really. Uh, it's kind of a thicker finish, and for a guitar that age, it, I just like something that's a little bit more fitting of its of its uh, of its age. And so, what I did is, well, I had I passed it on to you for a weekend, and yeah. had to kind of. I mean, wh- what exactly did you do? Because yeah. I got it back, and I'm extremely impressed with Good. it. It looks a lot more, you know, authentic, genuine, and it's just, and it I, looks like you didn't have to do too much, so what, what exactly did you do to kind of bring it out without a full, you know, well, redoing I, the entire thing? Yeah, I, you know, I've made uh, 62 um, or so replicas of 50s Fender tellies now, so uh, I've gotten pretty good at, at making a, a pretty good replica finish, and so I just took that finish as a basis and just did kind of, I just have a few tricks that I do to really make them look right, and uh, that's what I did to your guitar, is nothing, It's there's really nothing yeah. to... Yeah, well, man, yeah, I'm, I'm so pleased with it, man, it's kind of, it's good. a little nerve-wracking, like, and luckily, such a good relationship with you, I kind of went on a little vacation, just take it, do whatever, I didn't, I didn't care what you did, and... Man, you did such a great job. I really appreciate that. We're Good. very pleased with it. Well, I didn't have to do anything to the neck. It was looking right, but the body just didn't quite... Mm. The body didn't quite look right, did it? <laughs> I agree. No, I agree. Yeah. But it, it looks way better now, and I, I think that that's a guitar that you're going to have the rest of your life. Oh, yeah. I'll play that thing every day till I die. Nice. Nice. Well, um, I know that you, uh, you've you got a new band going on. Uh, wh- what, it, it's called The Haulers, right? Yeah, I play in a band called The Haulers. Um, we, I sing, I play guitar, and it's uh, it's cool. It's you know, I really like. I'm a sucker for even you know, '60s pop music, '70s pop, any of that. So I, you know, just how accessible that music is. So I'm playing in kind of indie rock band that kind of has a a pretty poppy 
um, foundation with it. But the cool thing about it is all the guys are really tone savvy and, and gear savvy, which doesn't always um, really matter. But for us, it's kind of a, it's fun. But so in this outfit, I get a plug this telly straight into an old Viberlux yeah. and the other guitar players, you know, use an advantage. And man, it is, it is so fun when you kind of have a complete band using all these real old instruments and hand-wired amps. And I feel like, you know, if one guy in the band has an old guitar and everybody else is using new stuff, it doesn't make a big difference. But, yeah. man, the last practice that I brought this to, and everybody was kind of plugged in these real great equipment, it was just, you could just feel in the room, you could feel the tube, you could feel the heat. It was, <laughs> you know, it could be in my brain, but whatever it is, you know, I think it, it also... Even if it's tricking you, it's making you perform better. So, where are you guys playing in the Seattle area? This are you playing this month anywhere? Yeah, we um we're playing at the Skylark in West Seattle, um on Friday the thirteenth, and um, the Sunset in Ballard um, in, on the twenty eighth. Um, so a couple couple shows. And, um, yeah, cool. Um, the cool it's a cool band. Right on, man. Well, I I hope to get this podcast. Uh, published here before those dates come up and maybe uh, you know if you're in the seattle yeah, area man. you should go check out the haulers with trevor boone frank gross right on the other oh. guitar right uh yep that's right frank from uh thunder road guitars so like battle of the guitar stores except in the same band <laughs> right yep cool man well i know you're gonna go fishing today so i'll let you go uh uh catch some fish Hey, thank you so much, Eric, and uh, really enjoy your podcast. Yeah, man, thanks. Thanks for being on the show. Have a great day, man. Okay, take care. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of The Fret Files. You can uh, visit me online at ericdaw.com or fretfiles.com. I'd really appreciate it if you would participate in the show. You can do that by emailing me uh, your comments or questions, and I'll use them on the show. Email them uh, using ericdaw.com. Just click on the contact link and uh, send me a message there. Or you can call the show. I'd love it if you'd call, and it's just a, a hotline where you can leave a message. I, I don't answer that that number. It's just a voicemail. So call that any time of night or day in whatever state uh, you're in, <laughs> geographically or, or uh, mentally, and uh, uh, leave me a message there uh, with your question or comment, guitar-related, and I'll use it for the show. That number is 757-774-8482. Uh, I want to thank Michael Van Dieven at ufoship.com for for hosting this podcast it's a it's a podcast website with with uh, a few podcasts over there at ufoship.com so check that out and uh thanks to trevor boone for joining me on the show thank you to red uh joining me for the news and uh thanks to you for listening i really appreciate your support and uh your participation in the show so uh anyway till next time Later.